2: you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about UnitedHealthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Todorovich. I'm joined by my co-host. With the most. Dr. Matthew Barton. How are you, Matty?
1: Uh, well, thanks, Mike. That's good. Thanks for having me again. Oh, no problem. Thanks for
2: joining me um, on as my we, podcast. As,
1: <laughs> as we embark on a wonderful journey.
2: Oh, what is this journey we're taking?
1: Um, it's a journey through nine meters of sludge. <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> All
2: right. Good start. Um, Di- I s- digestive system. Okay. Gotcha. Digestive system. Yeah. So you and I are dancing cheek to cheek, I guess.
1: Yep. Instead of, uh, what was the thing you did in your
2: lecture? Oh yeah. That was bad. Uh, so, dear listener, oh, in terms in
1: terms of how you introduced this introduced this system,
2: yeah, I uh, I it was the digestive system week, and I got up in front of my students to do the lecture, and to begin the entire lecture, I said, uh, "Today, everyone, we're going through mouth to anus," and <laughs> there was a significantly quiet sort of uh, abs- there was an absence of sound. Um, <laughs> A few Snickers, uh, you know, people... Uh, chocolate bars? <laughs> S- Snickers. Um, Snickers. Snickers? Snickers? Snickers.
3: Snickers.
2: <laughs> Snickers. <laughs> Some students threw Snickers bars at me. Um, because and-
1: you are in the digestive system, are you sure that they were Snickers bars? <laughs> <laughs> this could be part of the Bristol...
2: Anyway, you know. I have to say that to the students... Um, uh, sorry, we're not going through mouth to anus. We're going through the digestive system, starting at the mouth and finishing at the anus. Right.
1: Because um, I thought it was like well, CP- I- CPR or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> digestive CPR, <laughs> mouth to <laughs> anus, blowing, blowing people up like a
1: balloon. Well, you know, like back in the day, they tried to treat people with drowning yeah. by blowing tobacco smoke up their bum.
2: Well, that's where the saying comes from, isn't it? Blowing smoke up someone's ass. Yeah. Stop blowing smoke up my ass. That's where it it came from.
1: Which I don't think there's any validity in. So I I, I wouldn't practice that.
2: No, cuz supposedly like the smoke was to get the it force the water out of the Oh really? Lungs. It wasn't like nicotine or something. No. No, it was just the smoke. Oh, wow. It wasn't even it wasn't even just nicotine. I think that was just the easiest way to get smoke up there. Wow. Without lighting a fire on someone's crack. <laughs> All right. So we're going through the digestive system today. Uh, we will be starting at the mouth, moving through to the anus. We're going to be talking about the hollow tube that you like. How long is this tube, Matt? Nine meters. Nine meters, like you said. Measured it yesterday. <laughs> Did you swallow a tape measure?
1: <laughs> um, a piece of uh, thread, twine. Oh. Swallowed it. Um,
2: Did they do that? No, they can't do that because I assume the the stomach would break mine, it down.
1: Mine came out with a knot
2: in it. Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's. I'm not um, sure where the knot was. T- I'm guessing it was done in the stomach. Talented. Yeah,
2: that's right. Very like how people can tie a cherry, uh, uh, little cherry end in their mouth. You see, oh yeah. People yes. tie tie a knot out of the cherry stem. That's that's impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, you tied a knot in a piece of string in your gut. All right, digestive system: nine ready- meters of a tube, uh, and we've got, and so it starts at the mouth, goes through to the esophagus, then to the stomach, then to the small intestines, then to the large intestines, which finishes at the anus. But we also have accessory organs that are associated with this tract that sort of secrete and squirt substances, juices, enzymes into this hollow tube to aid us in the process of digestion. So I think the whole purpose of this digestive system is to aid us in digestion. But what do we mean by digestion?
1: Changing the food from food into molecules.
2: Right. How's that? That's pretty cool.
1: And then you absorb the molecules into your blood the the molecules that will go into your blood, then they get taken to your liver, essentially, and then you get rid of it.
2: Right, we don't do anything with it. We don't use it. We just like break oh, it down.
1: Sorry. <laughs> well, the remaining food that is is left, we get rid of. We get rid of. But we the building eliminate.
2: blocks that we've just broken down, uh, we utilize for energy or we utilize to build the body up. Right. So that's the whole purpose of digestion is to take macronutrients, so these larger food products, these larger molecules, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and break them down into their relevant micronutrients, the absorbable particles that we can use for energy or for building. So for carbohydrates, it's going to be glucose predominantly or fructose and galactose, but ultimately glucose really. For proteins, it's going to be amino acids. And for uh, fats, it's going to be also known as triglycerides. Triglycerides, it's going to be fatty acids and glycerol. Sounds-, sounds good. And you can also break DNA. So basically every organism that we eat will have DNA. Yeah. It sounds weird that you're eating other animals' DNA, but we break the DNA up into nucleic acids and we use that as well.
1: Which is an interesting point. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but you know when we we're talking – in probably the second year of the covid we're kind of still in the pandemic mm-hmm. but when we started to talk about the mrna vaccines and yeah. people were getting upset that we're introducing foreign uh dna or mrna into our bodies and we're like well what could this happen And went, as you just said we do it all the time with just eating
2: every time you eat a plant or animal you are taking in their dna yeah and but we use it we use it Break it up, and we need those nucleic acids. Uh, so this is the whole purpose of the digestive system. Uh, it's you know that we continually through this digestive process, we continually provide the body with water, electrolytes, vitamins, and then those nutrients that we just stated. So it's not just the you know the breakdown products of proteins, fats, and carbs. It's vitamins. Yep. It's electrolytes: yep. Yep. sodium, potassium, magnesium, chloride. It's water as well. The yep. body needs all these things, and we get it through ingestion, digestion, and absorption, which are the major processes that these digestion, so, that again. so we ingest ingestion, yep, digestion, yep, and absorption.
1: Okay, and there's some additional ones you can add to this. Yes, elimination. Yeah. So that's to get rid of the, the final get rid end of the, product, the crap.
2: Yeah, literally, <laughs> and and. Figuratively.
1: Whether you consider this a function or not is potentially debatable, but motility, so the movement of it through the tract.
2: I th- see that as just a necessary function for the other things to occur. Okay.
1: And then secretion. I guess you put that with digestion.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I was basically right with uh, my uh, So before we start digestion, on, digestion
1: are, we, are we going to basically do a, a journey from the start the top to the bottom, or from yeah, I think the, we will from from do a, cheek a journey cheek.
2: from cheek to cheek. I think it's important to say to you know our dear listener is that if you were to take your hand and, and rub the cheek of your face, okay. and then take your hand and move it into your mouth, and then you were to have some <laughs> inspector gadget arm that could then tra- traverse the long nine meters harrowing nine meter journey to your anus, and then move your hand back out your buttocks, to your other cheeks, cheek to cheek. Slap that cheek. <laughs> to slap that cheek. That, as you can t- see, the outside of your body is continuous with the inside of your digestive system. Mm. So in actual fact, the… So you're saying that it's technically the outside world still? That's right, my friend. That's right. And okay. that's how it's treated. So when we absorb something, you're basically taking it from the outside in. And so the digestive tract, whatever is floating through that digestive system is in a way recognised as outside of the body.
1: Okay, so with um, that tube that you've just put your hand into.
2: Yeah, it's my of, tube, so of, it's fine. Of nine
1: metres. If you were to um, open that out and so present that to the outside world.
2: I'd <laughs> be arrested and I'd be it'd be in decent exposure.
1: Would it, be, would it have a greater surface area than um, your outside skin Ooh. body?
2: Great question. I don't know the answer. Do you know the answer?
1: Yes, it, it I would is. I'd say it
2: would be significantly. Yeah, yeah. Because if you think about all the folds and grooves and curves and…
1: <laughs> Both macroscopically, so what you can see. If you just folded it out, you're probably talking 20 to 30 metres, square metres. Wow. Which is more than your skin. I think if you rolled your skin out, it would be just like…
2: I think it's like a two s- square metre rug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but… Yeah, your, ins- your intestines or let's just say the gastrointestinal tract would probably be 20 to 30 metres. But then if you…
2: So like square metres. Yeah. So then wow. if you
1: took upon the… Is that like a tennis court? Oh, maybe, maybe more like a b- badminton.
2: Okay. Yeah, because everyone knows the size of a badminton court. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but then I think if you went microscopically, so then you went to the villi and microvilli level, then it's getting much bigger. So beyond a tennis court probably.
2: Yeah that's it's enormous So, the, but so why the, do we need the, such a big surface area so, so for
1: so the point of that is just to demonstrate if you're saying that the gastrointestinal tract is the outside world mm. there's actually more of you on the outside in that nine meters than what I'm seeing of you now of your skin
2: wow so beauty is only skin deep beauty is digestive deep. Yeah. So
1: that's... Nine metres. Like okay, but why? Deep.
2: Why do we need the digestive system to have such a large surface area, especially compared to our skin? I think predominantly it would be for absorption. So the greater the surface area, the more things we'll absorb. Yeah. And we don't really absorb stuff through our skin per se. Oh, you do, but... But no, uh, our nutrients. Not the same way, yeah. Yeah. All right, so...
1: So you would take in about one to three kilos of food per day? Well... So that's what's going. What about in. you, though? That's what's going in.
2: What about you? You're like a duck, dear listener. Matt eats like a duck. Well, he, I, uh, I just bypass. He chooses often as a duck does, which is uh, zero, and he just throws it into his. I believe you have a gut. Well, uh,
1: I I bypass the first step
2: of the digestive process. So
1: one to th- one to three kilograms of foodstuffs goes into the oral cavity. Yeah, probably three hundred to five hundred grams
2: come out. The back end? The back end. Really? So night. that means we're utilising, you know, a, what, two odd kilograms of that foodstuffs in the body? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So so does that mean we're going to now begin with the process of ingestion?
1: Yeah, I'm I was just going to give you a, a couple of facts before we begin, just as an overview of the All digestive right. system. So as I said, one to three kilos of food stuffs goes in, we have to go – the digestive system made up of about 10 different organs. Do you want to list them now? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, okay. so
2: we've got the hollow tube. Yeah, and, and that's broken up. And I said that's mouth, esophagus, stomach, small yeah. intestines, large intestines. Yep. So the anus. Rectum. Are you, okay, large intestines, rectum, anus. Yep. But that's just the hollow tube. But the, then you've got all these that's other the – tract. That's Accessory the tract. structures. Yep, so now go
1: accessories.
2: Okay, so uh, salivary glands yep. in the oral cavity. Yep. Uh, you're going to have the liver. Yep. You go and have the pancreas. Yep. You are going to have the gallbladder. Yep. You is That's there nine. anything else? How many in total did you say? One more. Oh. Um what have I missed? Mesentery. Oh, mesentery. Interesting. Interesting. Uh let's not talk about that yet. <laughs> What's the other name for the mesentery? Um no other name?
1: Maybe double fold peritoneum.
2: Okay, let's just stick with mesentery
1: then. There's different parts of the mesentery, like yeah. the greater omentum. Oh, and that is the, but that's just not the only part of it. That's just one part. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. So we've got all those structures.
1: Yeah, but we've got about 20 specialized cells that are that make up the digestive system.
2: Really? Yeah.
1: I haven't made the list of them all.
2: Okay, but, but just go through them all anyway. <laughs> um. But these are cells that have secreting or absorbing... It's secretion or absorption-based functions.
1: Correct. Okay. And then you could possibly add in additional things along the way, which you kind of mentioned. That could be things like enzymes, Mm. hormones. You need a blood vessel system network. You have lymphatics. So all these things kind of get... Did I say nerves? And also nerves. Yeah. Yeah. So these are are things that will be required for a functional digestive system.
2: Well, I think absolutely because the digestive system doesn't work, just like any system, doesn't work in isolation. And if you're absorbing these micronutrients, vitamins, electrolytes, water and so forth, they need to be absorbed into something. So they get absorbed through the cells of the digestive tract or alimentary canal, as it may be sometimes called, into either the blood or the lymphatic system for it to be taken to the liver or to be taken to the tissues of yeah, the body, yeah. right? And and that's important because the bloodstream and lymphatic system are important transit highways, pathways, for these molecules to travel to the liver for it to be stored or utilised, but it can also send it to the muscles, fatty tissue, whatever it may be. But we'll get to that point. So how do you want to – we begin with ingestion or well, are you going to say some facts?
1: Uh no, I've basically done all my facts. Really? They were terrible to- facts. Last, the last point I'll make, though, because um, I spoke about how much we consume, ingest, and I kind of mentioned how much comes out the back end, about 300 grams per day. How, how long would it take for your food to get there to the, to the finish
2: line? I'm sure it's different for each person. So you (laughs) always, Matt Matt always teases me because the average human. I will, I will ingest a meal, and I'm confident that I will defecate that meal out within 30 minutes. Um, (laughs) That's (laughs) insane. I would say, for the average person, this might shock you. Okay, uh, this is guys. This is entirely a guess or one person that's listened to the podcast. Uh, 12 hours. Um. No. Six hours.
1: This is the average. Average the, from the, mouth the, to anus. The average male. Yes. Is the time it takes from it to get in the mouth to. Yep. The, so I swallow in,
2: a bite of a burger. Into the by toilet. the time it's in the toilet.
1: Between between thirty and fifty hours.
2: Nah, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I think, I think that's the average person who goes to the bathroom once every four days. <laughs>
1: I'm telling you, this is the averages that I found.
2: I wonder how. Do you know how often? And
1: it's even if it's even longer in females.
2: Really? Yeah. So how often do you think people defecate on average?
1: I think the recommended is between one to two times per day.
2: Yeah, but do you think the average person defecates once or two times a day?
1: Yeah, good question. I definitely at
2: Whoa. least two. And tell me about it. That's when you make all your business calls, <laughs> so to speak. Matt calls me three times a day, and it's only when he defecates. But uh, it <laughs> that's
1: three conversations a day.
2: <laughs> I would say two times a day for me, and yeah. I think it's important that we do talk about it. Mm. Um, and I mean, but I know people who defecate once every three days. Mm.
1: I, so this may be the people. blows my mind. This may be the people.
2: Yeah, but that's the thing. I would like to know the uh, dear listener. If you if you find out the answer to this, email us. G-U biosciences, G-U-Biosciences, G-U-B-I-O, S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S at gmail.com. Send us an email. Tell us if you find out, evidence-based, I don't want your guess. Tell us the evidence-based average. Average that people defecate per week.
1: The average human.
2: Is it once a day? Is it once every three I would like to know that because I think I, that a I've
1: got between 30 to 50 hours.
2: Yes, I'm sure. I'm happy
1: to be proven incorrect.
2: I'm sure that I've had a corn cob <laughs> and have seen remnants of that same corn cob the next day. Yep. But anyway, that You might be-
1: have a super fast transit time.
2: I think I do. I think I do. But I do have IBS, so that could potentially be one of the factors coming into play. All right, let's let's start with the oral Don't cavity. Don't
1: get confused with the IRS.
2: No. Um, both,
1: both will make you want to go to the toilet.
2: Though. And I do promise you I will pay all that back <laughs> if you're listening, which I'm sure you are. <laughs> so let's begin with the process of ingestion. Yeah. We are taking in foodstuffs or liquids that we need to break down ultimately into their micronutrients for absorption. So ingestion, um, this is uh, an interesting point because we need to talk about what makes us want to ingest something, first of all, because the digestive system – is obviously breaking things down, uh, but you need an intrinsic desire for food. Do you know what that term is called when you have an intrinsic desire for food? Appetite. Hunger. Okay. Now, appetite is actually your your food preference. Oh, right, right. But your intrinsic desire for wanting to eat, that's hunger. Okay. But then you've got food preference, and that's your appetite. So they're two different things. Um, that is both environmental mm-hmm. and genetic influenced to varying degrees and as we know i'm sure you're aware that if you've ever had gastro or food poisoning yep. you very quickly lose your appetite for particular foods what,
1: for particular foods or yeah. just food in general
2: no no for particular well if you have the food poisoning in the moment then yes you'll lose your appetite or uh, or your hunger anorexia it's called anorexia uh because you do you just want to get things out you don't want to get things.
1: do you know out. why you may develop that anorexia Due to sickness.
2: Now you're not talking about anorexia nervosa, which is a particular pathological condition. Psychological you're talking condition, about yeah. Anorexia, which is psychologically your non want or desire for food. Yes, that's right. Yep. You're not wanting to eat. Yes. During sickness. So what are you saying? Why does that happen? Yeah. Um, as in the the mechanism?
1: Briefly, but yeah. then possibly the evolutionary benefit.
2: Well, my thought would be you've ingested something that your body thinks uh not is not just
1: food poison, just generally.
2: Oh, okay. No, go, go.
1: No, just when you're, you're ill. You've got the flu, you've yeah. got COVID or you've got food poisoning. Why do you get anorexia, not wanting to eat?
2: My thought would be because it needs to focus processes of the body, focus. You spend a lot of energy, strangely enough, taking the energy from food. But you need to probably focus that energy on fixing yourself, on healing yourself, on maintaining existence as opposed to eating.
1: Yeah, there's probably... But I could be wrong. I think that's one hypothesis. Yeah. So, first of all, when you get... The last way of saying I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, you're partly right. Yeah. So, when you get sick, there's probably inflammation occurring, so cell injury, cell damage, which uh, is alert in your immune system that there's something going on, and that is sending cytokines to your body to...
2: Pr- so pro-inflammatory chemicals.
1: To tell your immune system probably to come to this location because you need some help getting rid of this problem. Yeah. Okay. And I guess not a side effect of that, but a systemic effect is a whole lot of parts of your body will react to that. This is where you get your fever. This is where you might get muscle joint aches, but you also get your anorexia from. Now, how that might benefit, first one, I think you're correct. It kind of provides the energy for the immune system to, to take out the problem and repair, but I think it also makes more efficient autophagy. So the process of autophagy, which is to clean up things that could be damaged or So when you're not
2: eating, it's promoting autophagy?
1: It just makes it more efficient, that process, apparently when you haven't eaten for a period of time.
2: Right, right.
1: But other benefits, and this is thought to be other um, evolutionary benefits, would be if you have a gastrointestinal uh, infection, you're not desiring to eat, so you're maybe less likely to go back to the... Um, community, what is it? Uh, water and hole, not the water and hole, but like the oh, the well to contaminate, to contaminate it. Yeah,
2: well, that's interesting. Or
1: you're just not socializing, so you're less likely to pass on what have you got to. Oh, how everywhere. interesting!
2: Yeah, that's I never thought about that. Mm. But that is interesting. Last thing you want to do is pass that bug. I just had gastro. I am on the back end, so to speak, <laughs> of of a of gastroenteritis. And uh, it came out the back end for me only. But for my son, who got it a day after me, strangely enough, usually I get it from him, it came out his front end only, just spewing. And for me, it lasted two days. For him, it lasted, what, five hours. And it was done. So it's so interesting how the same virus, which it generally is, mm. uh, unless it's food poisoning, uh, how, which it can also be viral, but how the virus of gastro that causes gastroenteritis, can affect people so differently, especially children to adults. Usually when it's not that severe for the kids, it destroys me, absolutely destroys me. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so we still haven't started with the process of ingestion, so just taking foodstuffs in. Uh, And we do this because we have an intrinsic desire for food, hunger, and you choose particular foods from your appetite. And the very first process that will occur will be that of mastication. So the so first chewing. process of ingestion is chewing, mastication. How many teeth do we have uh-huh. in an adult mouth, Matthew? I should know this. I, tell me. I always forget too. 32 adult teeth. Seems like a lot. Evolved for chewing. Uh, and your front teeth?
1: I've had, I've had eight. Out, eight of my teeth out. Wow.
2: You do have big teeth. Yeah. I Whoa. Sorry, man, just took his
1: dentures out. <laughs> and braces. I've had braces. Yeah, I've had eight teeth out, yeah. Wow. So I've got an expensive mouth.
2: <laughs> so your front teeth, also known as your incisors, yeah. they're there for cutting. Mm-hmm. And your back teeth, your molars, are there for grinding. Now what does that then tell us about our food preferences as an adult human being? Um, cutting and grinding. What about the… Tearing. Our canines. Canines, yes. Yeah. So tearing, tearing, yep. So cutting, grinding, tearing. What does that tell you about the types of foods we are ingesting?
1: Probably meat at the front and seeds and vegetables at the back.
2: So both carnivorous and uh, herbivorous. herbivorous. Yeah. So we're omnivorous. So we eat all of the above. In actual fact, human beings are probably, as an organism, one of them have the most diverse diet. On the planet. If you think about it very... Pigs? Pigs well I mean yeah, well pigs and goats will probably eat... No, goats are herbivores Oh that's true, they're not going to start eating meat, that's no. true. But I think most animals on this earth have a very narrow or specific diet mm. um, and not, and I'm not just saying it's either carnivorous or herbivorous if, if they are carnivorous it's generally one type of meat and if it's herbivorous it's generally one or a couple of types of Uh, plant-based products right but we are super diverse which is great which is one of the reasons why we are such a successful species species, uh, is because we are so diverse and so we've got these front teeth for cutting we've got these uh, uh, canines for tearing and we've got these molars for grinding how much force do you think our incisors our front teeth can place onto food less than a crocodile Great. That's true. Which has one of the strongest, <laughs> most impactful oh, it does jaws it? on the planet. Uh, yes. 25 kilograms of force, our incisors can place onto food. Okay. And our back teeth, our molars, 90 kilograms yeah, of force. Yeah, I, I would have thought
1: much more at the back.
2: Right. Which is half of your body weight. Wow. Right? That the molars can place. That was a joke. Uh, that's fine. Matt's not a 180 kilograms. But anyway, all right. <laughs> didn't,
1: didn't play, sorry.
2: So, when we are chewing, we use very specific muscles. Do you know the four main muscles for chewing?
1: Muscles of mastication.
2: The muscles of... Sorry, what was that?
1: Of mastication.
2: Mastication. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Um, what are the muscles of mastication? One of, my,
1: one of my professors used to make a joke with that. What was it? Oh, he would say the muscles of mastication. Then he would point out to a, a gentleman in the crowd and say, stop looking at your forearm muscles. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway um temporalis temporalis is um, one masseter yes and two pterygoids yes lateral and medial pterygoid yeah uh and so so the, so the big the animals that have a, a very powerful uh bite mm. they would predominantly well, a lot of their force would be done by the temporalis and that's why they usually have a big ridge at the top of their skull yeah which is the sagittal ridge, and that's the anchor point for this muscle. So if you look at the big cats,
2: yes, if you have a look at the yeah. skull of a of a tiger, for yeah. example, or dogs, right? They have. I did a so that's temporalis. Temporalis,
1: attached. yeah. I did a um a science project in my undergrad on koalas, and I looked at their sagittal crest, and it seemed that as they got older, the quality of their teeth diminished because yeah. they they wore them out. And so they needed more powerful temporalis muscles. Huh. So they got a bigger ridge as they got older.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So what about the masseter then? So does the temporalis provide greater force than the masseter does?
1: Yeah, I think it's just because it's of the size of the muscle, it provides greater force over a greater range of motion. I don't know how that compares to the masseter. Maybe the masseter, um, just in terms of where it's aligned and where it kind of attaches to, doesn't have as much force. Maybe it does in a particular part of the bite.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not a… Like an angle of the… Once it's at an angle of the joint. I know that the pterygoids, lateral and medial, are quite important for the sideways movement that we often do with chewing left and right. Yeah, and there's only… Forward and back, protrusion, retraction.
1: And then it's only the lateral, I think, that is the depressor of the mouth. And that's why… Opening up. Yeah, that's why the big, powerful… Animals with a big, powerful bite—you like can keep their mouth closed easily.
2: Yeah, with a rubber, you can keep yeah. a croc's mouth shut with a rubber band.
1: And but but doing the other way, you need like a a yeah. star picket or something.
2: Yeah, that's right. Which is interesting. Mm. So they're the four muscles. Uh, when it comes to the nervous innovation for these muscles, remember the cranial nerves—twelve pairs of cranial nerves. Uh, do you know which cranial nerve? There's only one cranial nerve involved in the chewing process. Do you know which one it is? Trigeminal. Which is cranial nerve? Uh, Five. Yes. And it's only one branch of the trigeminal, which is the?
1: The mandibular.
2: Yeah. So that's what we call V3, the third branch. So ophthalmic, axilla and mandibular. And so it innervates these muscles to either open the jaw to relax or close the jaw to contract. Interestingly, we've got a a biting reflex. So have you ever thought about why we – how we know how – Contracted, we need to make our jaw with certain foodstuffs. So, for oh, example, probably proprioception, right? That's exactly right. It's proprioception because if we were to contract too hard, would bust the tooth. <laughs> yeah, and that's super important. Or, for example, have you ever like chewed something that's supposed to be soft, but there was something hard in it, mm-hmm. and very quickly you were able to detect that, and you didn't you didn't bite down so hard that it broke your tooth. Yeah. So this is the chewing reflex really important it's it's actually the fastest reflex in the body makes sense right and so you've got these trigeminal sensory neurons that pick up proprioception you bite down it stimulates the sensory neuron goes into your brain stem synapses directly
1: so like a monosynaptic one
2: synapse right synapses directly with a motor neuron that comes back out to your jaw and just relaxes that jaw straight away super quick fastest reflex in the body and that's important, and that's basically what happens every time you chew. Every time you bite down too much, it sends this proprioceptive signal to inhibit the motor neuron. So, do certain and your people- jaw relaxes, certain- and then wait a sec. And then when the jaw relaxes and opens up, it stimulates stretch receptors, which sends another reflex back in to tell it to contract. Right. So that's the chewing process: contract, relax, contract, relax.
1: Very interesting. Do other diseases that kind of in- or impair this neurological signal that can lead to teeth? Breaking problems? Well, the t-
2: I did a presentation to uh, the Australian Dental Association on this topic a, a couple of months ago and I was talking to some maxifacial surgeons and dentists who were talking about grinding teeth at oh, night. at night. And they were asking me about, well, what's the role here with grinding teeth? And so we don't know, but interestingly, when you're asleep, you can trigger the release of adrenaline. Uh, through dream states and so forth. And that e- adrenaline, which comes from a very specific part of, of the brain brainstem, uh, the locus coruleus, so that has adrenergic, so that sends adrenaline, right? So the locus coeruleus can get stimulated in times of fear or sleep or whatever it may be, sends adrenergic neurons straight to this motor neuron of the trigeminal, release adrenaline, which stimulates it and can stimulate this reflexive grinding of the, of the jaw. Wow. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out ways to sort of stop that. That's one hypothesis and just one mechanism.
1: Is that where they, where they postulate that if you have a lot of stress, you grind more at night and that that's could right. be because of just the stress of the sympathetic nervous system being more active? Locus coruleus.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Hey? Sounds like a,
1: a Roman My favourite.
2: Yeah. That's, uh, that's my joke, Matt, but that's fine. You can steal it. My mm-hmm. famous, my uh, uh, most popular... And uh, famous Roman emperor's locus carullis. Anyway, great joke. Uh, <laughs> I'll make it again later on. So we're now chewing. Now why do we need to chew foodstuffs? What is the importance of this process? Why are you looking at me for? Because I you never do, do, it. do it. I don't do it. Your teeth are so big that I would assume that you'd be great at it. But it's I just like- do it once. <laughs> <You> just get- <laughs> And then it's all done. So chewing is part of digestion. What was your question? Why do we chew? It's part of oh, digestion. Break it up. Um, what's, what's the what's the technical term that we form use? Form it into a a, bol- a bolus. Okay. And we're the, not there yet with the bolus because we need something else to come in. Saliva. Yes. But the process of chewing is what we call mechanical digestion. Oh, okay. Because remember, there's two types of digestion. Mechanical and what's the other type? Chemical. Chemical digestion.
1: So the physical part of mechanical then?
2: That's right. Physical di- – so physically tearing things apart.
1: So that is mechanically is part of physical Always physical part of mechanical.
2: Uh, they're synonymous, so Are it they? doesn't matter.
1: So what about what happens when we get um, down to the small intestine and do uh, emulsifying? Isn't that a form? Oh, of physical? you and I have
2: had this argument before. Emulsification
1: is like busting is into both. Sleep.
2: It's both because you need a chemical to emulsify. Do
1: you so it's detergent? But isn't that a physical kind of?
2: But the, without the chemical, it's yeah, not happening. Okay, all right. So I I, can't, I, can't I see that. emulsification as chemical part of chemical digestion but it's it's sort of preluding chemical digestion because it's not actually anyway you always bring that up
1: it's not really chemically altering the molecules it's just well it
2: is because the detergent comes in to alter the chemical structure to create these what's called micelles to make these little globules of of fats but we'll get to that point yeah yeah i'll we'll just get it around the definition that's yeah, all. Yeah, okay, here we go. So, mechanical digestion versus chemical digestion, we are now beginning the process of digestion in our mouth with these 32 teeth chewing, tearing, grinding, but we also now need the release of saliva from our salivary glands. How many salivary glands we got?
1: Um, paired? We yeah. are we doing pairs in pairs or just number?
2: Oh, which, whatever you like, Matt.
1: Parotid's two parotids. Okay,
2: what's parotid mean?
1: Um, around The ottered,
2: The ear, yes. (laughs) Yep, near the ear.
1: Um, Submandibulars, uh, under the mandible. Okay. And sublingual, under the tongue.
2: All right. So that's our salivary glands.
1: Yeah, uh, presumably there's two of each.
2: Yes. And we've got some like scattered buccal salivary glands as well. Okay. Salivary tissue. Okay. But yes. So this is important because salivary glands release saliva, which contains a whole bunch of stuff, right?
1: prodded twenty to thirty percent of all saliva is from the prodded. Right. Sixty to seventy percent from the submandibular. Yep. And three to five percent from the sublingual.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so it most of so we're not releasing something like a liter of saliva 1. every 5 day. Five
1: liters. Yeah.
2: Pun. litres. 1.5 litres from these three salivary glands. And it's made up of two major things. What's called a serous solution. So a serous secretion, which is amylase, enzyme, that breaks down carbs. And then the other thing is mucus for lubrication. Right. So they're the two major things that it releases. Together or in
1: separate periods of time?
2: Together, Hmm. but certain glands release more of one than another. Uh, But the amylase which is the enzyme that the saliva has, is there to specifically break down carbohydrates. Yes. Chops yes, carbs up yep. into its smaller micronutrients. So like into important. so like into its um,
1: what is it? Disaccharides.
2: Yeah. Because carbohydrates are polysaccharides and it can break it up into disaccharides or even monosaccharides depending on if how you leave long it long you, enough. Yeah. So one of the experiments we do with our students is to give them a piece of bread and just leave it in their mouth. Just leave it there. Don't chew it. Just leave it and then after a while it'll start to taste sweet. And that's because the amylase in your your saliva has broken it down enough that you've released the glucose molecules and the taste receptors on your tongue now picks up the sweet taste of the glucose. Right. Right. Okay. So that's super cool. But there's other things in there. The mucus is… Mostly water. Mostly water. But there's also like defensins and um, lysozymes and IgG antibodies. So we actually have these protective mechanisms in our saliva to kill off bacteria and invading pathogens so it doesn't get any further down.
1: A lot of bacteria. We've probably got worse bacteria in our mouth for us than, say, a dog would.
2: I think it's more diverse in our mouth than a dog's.
1: My understanding, I could be wrong, and again I'm happy to be corrected here, so email in again and correct me, but it's more dangerous for us to get bitten by a human... Than it is, say, a dog.
2: At least in Australia where we don't have rabies. Oh,
1: that's right. So if you discount rabies and just the, the pathogens, the bacterial pathogens, it's probably worse to get bitten by a human.
2: Wow. Mm. Isn't that gross? Uh, and, and I think another important thing is, you know how when you wake up in the morning and you sort of roll over to say good morning to your wife and your wife goes, good morning. And then you feel like passing is out. Is your the, wife Darth Vader? The <laughs> um, because the breath doesn't smell that great. And I'm not saying mine smells good either. But the reason why it doesn't smell very good is because you sleep, your mouth's open, you don't produce dries much out. saliva. It dries out. You don't have those enzymes to break down, the, kill the bacteria. The bacteria thrives in the middle of the night. Uh, another reason why sore throats can get worse throughout the night uh, especially for bacterial infections, and then the breath stinks. Okay. So you need that saliva to break it down. So that's very important. Is that
1: why you chew gum?
2: Not while I'm asleep. That's probably <laughs> quite dangerous to do. So don't do that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm entering the day. Uh, so this saliva, okay, just in addition to doing all these things. look at that question. Breaking, <laughs> breaking down. Well, probably. I mean, I chew gum to just get foodstuffs out of my mouth. Yeah. And okay. because uh, I would rather chew gum than eat sometimes. Yeah, I could constantly eat. So there's many reasons why I chew gum.
1: Uh, So, but it shouldn't be. It should be sugar-free gum. We should put a a note there. Why is that? Well, if you have a lot of, if you got constantly have sugar in your mouth, that's going to increase caries.
2: Sorry.
1: Carries.
2: Yeah, Stephen King book carries carries. That's the Stephen King book carry.
1: Dental caries.
2: Oh, gotcha. All
1: right. So that's why like soft drinks are so bad because um, you're providing so much sugar for the bacteria to produce their chemicals which erode the enamel, yes. which open up your teeth to the possibility of having... Um, big holes. Big holes, yeah.
2: Yeah. So once we mix this, so we've mechanically digested this food, we've now mixed it up with saliva, which has broken down the carbohydrates. So the very first part of digestion in regards to of your three major macronutrients, proteins, fats and carbs, carbs begin to get digested in your mouth chemically. Right? But fats and proteins basically have only been broken down mechanically. There's with
1: a bit your teeth. of, of lipase there too, isn't yeah,
2: it? Yeah, but it's pointless. You okay. know what? It's not pointless, but it's. it's
1: Minuscule. Yeah.
2: So we've now, like you said, we've now created this big wet ball of bolus. Yes, it's called a bolus. And now we need to start to swallow. Okay. Right? And so this swallowing process, what's its technical term? Deglutition. Deglutition. Uh, and so this is actually a super complicated physiological process because if you think about it, the pharynx, which is the back of our throat, it participates in both swallowing and breathing. Mm-hmm. So when you swallow, you cannot compromise respiration too much. Yeah. So we need to… So you coordinate this
1: well. Yes.
2: Yeah. And generally when we swallow six seconds max that we are taking the time out of respiration. So you really don't want to take too much more time out of that respiration because then you are limiting how much oxygen you're getting in and how much carbon dioxide you're blowing out. So this is important. So the process of swallowing is very cool. It's got a number of phases associated with it, you know, like a, a, a voluntary phase, a pharyngeal phase, a esophageal phase. But basically the whole process involves you taking that bolus, using your tongue that both manipulates food around your mouth but also allows for you to have certain taste in your mouth. Um, But pushes that bolus. So right now, just swallow a bit of saliva and feel what your tongue does when you swallow that saliva. Pushes up. Pushes up and back, right? Yeah. So when it does this, if you've got food in your mouth, it pushes that food bolus up to the hard palate, which is just the roof of your mouth, and then back to the soft palate. And this stimulates neurons that go to your brainstem and then shoots back out to do a couple of things. So one is to block off your respiratory passageways. So it blocks off your nasopharynx. So you know the punching bag at the back of your throat, the uvula? uvula. uvula. Yep. It pushes that up to block your nasopharynx so yeah. that the food doesn't go up. Yep. And it also, uh, your tongue pushes back over your epiglottis to close your trachea so the food doesn't go down into your windpipe. And then narrows your pharynx so that the food has a little pathway to move yeah. down. And then you start this wave of constriction and relaxation called peristalsis that then transmits all the way down your esophagus, taking that food stuff with it. Mm. Uh, the, and it might be a bit of overkill, do you, but do you know what the the cranial nerves are that are involved in this process? What neurons are involved in swallowing? There's three main ones.
1: Well, from a sensory standpoint, um, trigeminal would be quite a lot. Mm. Um Tongue is hyperglossal. Mm-hmm. I would say most of the pharynx, yeah, the pharynx going into the top of the esophagus is going to be vagal. So you I think you've got one one muscle really from glossopharyngeal. Yep. Stylopharyngeus, I think. And all the rest is really vagal. Okay. But an interesting. You could also argue that. Facial's in there a bit as well because it's doing the muscles of facial expression. And if you have facial knocked out, which sometimes is with stroke, yeah, the patients lose their buckle
2: oh the, Oh, the contraction of the cheek muscles, the cheek and which they, help you move food around as well.
1: Or, but it kind of keeps the food in to the main vestibule of your right. mouth.
2: So food will get caught down the side of That's the right. mouth. That's yeah.
1: right. Or, or they bite their cheek.
2: Oh, right. Because they
1: don't have that kind of control over there cheek
2: so we've got facial nerve helps the cheek move the food and keep the food in the right part of the oral cavity you've got the trigeminal nerve which is helping with the chewing process yeah. you've got the hypoglossal nerve which is moving the tongue itself and you've got the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve which is part of the swallowing process
3: yeah
1: pretty much all vagus that's pretty cool yeah
2: so there's a fair few cranial nerves involved in yeah. chewing and swallowing
1: so that's any, why, knock
2: that's, out of any one of these through to stroke or bleeding or brainstem damage could really disrupt somebody's yeah. well-being, right? Yeah,
1: or dementia. They, so oh. they learn this – they, they – for, not forget it, but they um, – It's altered due it's, to the – And then they have, have risk of aspiration. Oh, that,
2: yeah. yeah, that's a good point.
1: And so you could also put that into drug overdoses. So this is where – people who are maybe close to being unconscious, yeah. so too much alcohol or other drug abuse, they can have problems. More, not more so with swallowing and regulating their breathing, mm. gag reflex, all oh, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing, yeah. so that can become a problem.
2: Yeah. Wow. It's oh, very complicated. It is extremely complicated. And so we've, let's just say we've now swallowed and we've begun this process of distending and stimulating the esophagus – which then results in this wave of contraction and relaxation called peristalsis. So once we've begun this wave at the esophagus, it sort of continues to send this potential wave through the esophagus, through the stomach, and actually sort of continues through the entire digestive tract, this sort of wave of peristalsis. And the way I like to explain to my students is if you were to get a stocking, Uh, put a tennis ball in it and try and get that tennis ball to the other end of the stocking. You're going to say swallow it. (laughs) You sort of of squeeze behind it to push it forward and then continue to sort of squeeze behind. So it contracts and relaxes and that's that process of peristalsis. Um, And this wave happens all the way down the esophagus. But an interesting point is that when you go from the oral cavity to the esophagus, from the esophagus to the stomach, from the stomach to the small intestines, from the small intestines to the large intestines – They're all actually distinct regions of the alimentary canal. While they're all connected, they're distinct. And there needs to be something that separates them out called a sphincter, which is just sort of like a bit of smooth muscle, a bit of muscle that's sort of thickened in those areas that closes it off.
1: In a circular fashion?
2: In a circular fashion. In a way, when nothing's happening, this is muscle that's contracted. Sort of like the opposite to normal muscle, which is relaxed, not contracted, when you are relaxed, it's contracted. When you're relaxed, and it needs to be stimulated to be told to relax. Okay, right. So it goes through this the esophagus in this wave like process uh, and pushes it all the way down. Now, the top of the esophagus is smooth muscle, so you don't control what's happening at the top of the esophagus consciously. But once you get to like the bottom third of it, other way around. Yes, the top is skeletal muscle. Yeah, yeah. You consciously control, and then when you get to the bottom third. It is smooth muscle. Yeah. So you don't consciously control. So that's like, that's why chewing and swallowing or at least the first part, you do it consciously. Then once you swallow, you, you let the body do its thing. Yeah. All the way up until defecation. Then you can decide, hopefully <laughs> you get to decide when you want to do it. To a certain it. extent, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's been times, well, like, past couple of days, I didn't get that choice. <laughs> it was taken from you. It wasn't afforded to me. That's correct. So we're out of the mouth now into the esophagus.
1: Yeah, I think we're almost out of the esophagus, aren't we?
2: Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're transporting our way down the esophagus. We've got these waves. Interestingly, once once the wave sort of starts in the esophagus, it just continues down. Mm. So this is the reason why you can swallow standing on your head is that these waves just you propagate. Do this? I've done it before. I wouldn't recommend it. Just to it. prove the point? Just to prove the point. I've done it in front of my students. Wow. Just so sh- show the peri- – just did a handstand against the wall and, sw- and drunk. Um, some, I don't know, some drink of some sort. But it just shows that regardless of gravity, these peristaltic waves can move it through. It takes about six seconds to go from mouth to the stomach through the esophagus. All right. Now we're in the stomach. Okay. So we've gone through the sphincter that separates the esophagus from the stomach.
1: Lower esophageal?
2: Yeah. Cardia? Sorry?
1: Cardia sphincter?
2: Cardiac sphincter. Cardiac. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think it's just because it's around where your heart is, mm. right? Around about that that level. Uh, and then it's now it's in the stomach, which is just…
1: So do you, do you have a problem with your cardiac sphincter, do you think? Because um, you do get reflux, right?
2: Yeah, I did used to get a lot of reflux.
1: You didn't get any more?
2: Um, not really uh, because it was the foodstuffs I was ingesting that gave me the reflux. Uh, sugary foods gave me a lot of reflux. Because you, you are
1: deficient in sucrase.
2: Yes, I don't have the enzyme that breaks down table sugar, wow. sucrose, which is a disaccharide that gives us two glucose molecules. So
1: you can do it to a small degree, but yeah, you and if you're just My eating buckets doesn't of release a lot of sucrose. If you just eat buckets of table sugar, you have some problems. I'll be
2: sick as a dog. Okay, sick as a dog. Yeah, um, and it just regurgitates back up. So a lot of people's lower esophageal sphincter isn't that great. A bit lazy. It's a bit lazy, but there's two sort of two mechanisms that sort of stops stuff from going from the stomach up to the esophagus, right? An and a- one like an angle. Yeah, it's the angle of it as well,
1: and also just the patency of the yeah. sphincter, right?
2: Yeah, so the sphincter is relatively tight, but can be quite relaxed. So generally, it should be tonic, which is relatively tightly contracted, but sometimes it can be a bit lazy. Uh, and it's the angle; it sort of has this kink in it once it goes from the esophagus to the s- stomach at the at that cardiac portion uh so now we're in the stomach which is a distension or dilation of this tube right yeah this alimentary canal uh the stomach's really interesting because when it's empty it holds around about 50 mils of stuff does it just collapse in on itself it just shrinks okay it just shrinks because it's it's got all these folds on the inside Rugae. Rugae that keeps it Small, but gives it the capacity to distend. Right. So when it's empty, 50
1: mils. So are those folds just there for expansion and contraction?
2: Predominantly, yes. Okay. But also gives a larger surface area to release enzymes for digestion. Not much stuff gets absorbed there. So the surface area of the stomach isn't there for absorption. It does absorb alcohol. And um, aspirin too, I think. And aspirin um, and other drugs, but not much else really. So the, its surface area is simply due to its ability to create a lot of mucus and a lot of enzymes for di- and uh, for digestion and chemicals for digestion. But before we do that, I said empty fifty mils, but when it's full, two liters. Right. Right. So what's that? Eight times. Eight times. Yes. One
1: fifty. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yep. I think. Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe it's not eight times.
1: Ten. Ten times would be
2: five hundred mils, wouldn't it? So let's say yes. <laughs> my maths isn't great. Look, someone will correct us.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com
2: to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm sure. Anyway, the point is empty 50 mils full around about two liters, which is a huge distension.
1: 25 to 50 times bigger.
2: Yeah. So that's huge. Significant. Yeah. So uh, I don't know why I said eight times. So that's amazing. And- that's the reason why when you're full, it feels like you need to undo your pants. The stomach is high up, right? It's just underneath your diaphragm. And your diaphragm is the the, the separation between your thoracic cavity and abdominal cavity. But the stomach's just underneath that. Your esophagus moves through your diaphragm. Yeah. And when your stomach distends, it simply just pushes all your intestines down. And that's why you feel like you need to undo your pants because your intestines are pushing down and out into your waist region, which is a bit gross. So... The stomach is does a couple of things. It stores, it mixes, and it empties. Do
1: you know what they used to think it was there for? What? It, they thought that the stomach was just there to putrefy food.
2: Putrefy is a horrible term. Yeah.
1: So you know how like you just have like roadkill on, <laughs> on the side of the road yeah. that would just sl-
2: <laughs> slowly rot?
1: Wow. That's what they thought the stomach was there for. Like your septic tank. Yeah.
2: Yeah, where it just sits and sort of S- self-ferments.
1: Yeah, putrefies. It's horrible. But you know, when they uh, historically, when they changed their understanding of what the stomach did, yeah.
2: When when that dude got shot in the gut or something, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happened with him? Was it a? Sh- did he get shot? Yeah. Or did something go through? Was it like a civil? This was it the American Civil War, British something like that.
1: I don't know if it was. Dr- when was the Civil War?
2: I'm Australian. Yeah, it's not my Civil War. I'm not sure.
1: It was in the 1880s.
2: Well, that's not, the Civil War's before then.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Now, another thing we need to get fact-checked on. Anyway, okay, I'm going to guess.
2: This, this is guess. Was the Civil War 1840s?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not going to even try. Yeah, who knows? So this particular gentleman was named Alexis St. Martin. Right. He was a Canadian fur trapper. So <laughs> the... Fur trapper. So these people went around shooting animals for their fur and then would... Oh, 1860s. So you weren't far off. No, sorry. So they would export the fur probably to Europe for clothing. Fur? Yeah. In the US? This this particular gentleman, he was from Canada. Right. Okay, but he was in a, a general store and um, someone was playing around with a, a firearm and it went off oh. and shot him in the guts. Oh, no. And so blew a hole in the front wall of his abdomen. Wow. And perforated through to the stomach. And so the gentleman, I think – the doctor, Bermont, I think his name was, he, um, I guess, treated him. Yeah. But there was a fistula formed from the… What's a fistula? Like a communication. So From where? The front of his abdomen. Yeah. So you could kind of look into the… through his anterior abdominal wall. Yeah. And it went straight in through the wall into his stomach. So basically so I could play peekaboo
2: with his stomach.
1: That's exactly right. Right. And so what the doctors thought was, <laughs> That's hey, um, this is going to stay just an open hole. Yeah. So what I'm going to do here is... Let's not
2: plug it or anything.
1: Well, maybe it was too late. Maybe it was like, well, how am I going to plug this hole? What, what am I going to put in the hole? I don't know. So plug. I guess they would have put some degree of dressing, dressing or something yeah. there so it doesn't spill out all the time. But anyway, uh, he thought what he would do is do some experimentation. So what he would basically do is get bits of food... Tied into a piece of silk thread and mm. throw it in through the
2: hole. <laughs> like went fishing in his yeah, stomach. Yeah.
1: And so threw it in there. Yeah. And then just saw how long it would take
2: oh, how for cool. whatever
1: thing it was. How cool. And then he would pull it back out. And so as, he'd watch
2: the digestion of like meat <laughs> and other things like that.
1: Yeah. And as good doctors did in those days. Don't tell me he tasted it. Uh,
2: what? What did he taste? What, the stomach contents? Yes. What did he like dip his finger in and go?
1: <laughs> no, he pulled the string back out and then have a taste at what it's on. Oh,
2: that's <laughs> disgusting. Why? You know what? It's weirdos. It's I reckon it's weirdos that do this. I reckon he pulled it out and he's like, oh, this is for science. And then he's licking the meat that was in this guy's stomach. And I assume he said it tasted bitter. Bitter, that's right. right? So Which it was is an acid, acidic.
1: And so that's where they, I guess, between – food intakes between meals, he would um, deduce that you would have more acidity in your stomach than when it was empty.
2: Well, it's not wrong yeah. because that's what the stomach does, one of the roles the stomach does do. It does bring the food in and store, but it's not like a septic tank for putrefaction. Uh, it doesn't hold it for very long, but it does play… that depends what
1: you eat, but yes. somewhere between three to six hours.
2: The stomach holds the food. Correct. And For me, seven minutes. So the stomach actually does both mechanical digestion and chemical digestion. But people don't realise the stomach contracts and moves, right? It, it creates these peristaltic waves that actually amplify from its most proximal end closest to the esophagus to its distal end closest to the small intestines. Yeah. So if we were to just have a look at the anatomy of the stomach quickly, you've got the, the, the roof of the stomach called the fundus, then you've got the body of the stomach, which is most of it. And then you've got the very end of the stomach called the pyloric. pylorus. yep. yeah. Now, the antrum is also close to the end as, as well, just so people are aware. But the pylorus is the very end part of the stomach.
1: Well, it's the sphincter, pyloric sphincter. The pylorus yep. is the kind of the area. Yep.
2: So uh, what the stomach will do is once you've got some f- foodstuffs in there, uh, it's going to trigger the release of a couple of things. Firstly, it's going to release huge amounts of mucus. Basically, the whole digestive tract releases mucus. So we don't have to keep saying this, but everywhere throughout the digestive tract basically produces mucus for the process of lubrication. And?
1: And? Or another big reason for why you produce mucus. Go on. Well, if you didn't have mucus, you'd start to digest your own tube.
2: That's true, but that was a separate thing that it releases though that stops. Well, it's in the mucus. So
1: like within the mu the mucus of the produced from the mucus membrane would be a a pH that would have probably the opposing of of what the pH is in that area. So in the stomach it would be a more alkaline mucus, right? Yes. Cuz otherwise if you didn't have this mucus layer, your stomach would start digesting itself.
2: Yeah, so let's now say that what we've swallowed is now fallen into the stomach. Uh,
1: Or thrown in by this doctor.
2: Or thrown (laughs) in by this doctor. Really interestingly, the food is actually dropped in from the esophagus and creates concentric rings in the stomach itself. The stomach has fluid in it, right?
1: Like blown smoke rings?
2: Yes, like smoke rings, but of water, uh, but of foodstuffs digested, liquefied foodstuffs. Like dropping a rock in a puddle? Yes. So you know how those concentric rings occur? With the oldest food furthest on the outside closest to the walls of the stomach. So that once it touches the walls, it stimulates the release of hydrochloric acid Mm -hmm. from cells called parietal cells uh, and the release of bicarbonate as well from these mucus secreting cells. And that's important because it stops the hydrochloric acid from breaking down the stomach wall yeah. but this hydrochloric acid simply just layers the wall it doesn't go any deeper into the stomach to inactivate the hydrochloric acid it just lines you
1: mean the, the bicarbonate
2: the bicarbonate yeah. just yeah. lines the wall of the stomach yeah. Yeah. so that it doesn't get digested but the hydrochloric acid moves away from the wall so that it can actually start to break down the the proteins and that's mainly what the hydrochloric acid does it's there to unravel proteins, the proteins. now interestingly but, but also
1: kill pretty much 99.2 something percent of the bacteria that you throw in there as well
2: well the the ph of the hydrochloric acid that it produces is 0.8 wow crazy acidic yeah. right the most acidic something can be zero yep um, i'm sure someone will correct me if that's wrong but 0.8 now this is three million times that of your arterial blood three million times the concentration of hydrogen ions in your arterial blood separated out in a separate cavity of the body yeah so it's
1: for good, so, re- for good reason.
2: For good reason. But this is an important point. This is normal in that in area. this area f- of human beings and arterial blood pH, which is 7.35, 7.45, significantly, 3 million times different.
1: So you're a bit more basic in the, um, the blood.
2: Yes. And for people saying, wait a minute, a pH of 0.8 compared to a pH of 7.25 or 7.3 for example, how is that 3 million times when you're only going from 0 to 7? Remember the pH scale is logarithmic. So Negative negative log. Yeah, so if you're going from a pH of 0 to 1, it's 10 times uh, times less hydrogen ions. From 1 to 2, 10 times less again and so forth. So it actually takes us, we use 1,500 calories of energy per litre of gastric juice to concentrate that much hydrogen ions in the stomach. So it takes a lot of energy Mm, to mm. do that. And what these hydrogen ions do, so hydrochloric acid is made up of hydrogen ions. That's the acid. right? What it does is it denatures protein. It unravels protein. And the analogy I use is it doesn't chemically digest in the sense that it doesn't chop it up like scissors. It just unravels. So if I gave you a ball of yarn or a ball of wool and a pair of scissors and said chop this up, it would be really hard to get the scissors around that ball of wool to chop it up. The easiest way to chop it up would be to first unravel the ball of wool and then line. to chop it up. So what the hydrochloric acid does is it unravels the ball of wool. That's what it does. But then we need enzymes in the stomach that chop it up with uh, as basically bigger, mo- big, bigger chunks, In yeah, molecular smaller chunks as molecular scissors, right? And so we've got the hydrochloric acid to unravel, denature the protein but we've also got the enzymes to do the chopping. And this is released by another type of cell in the stomach called a chief cell, and this is called pepsinogen. If it ends in O-G-E-N, what does that tell you, Matt?
1: It needs to generate itself into the active form.
2: Yeah, it's inactive. So do you know what activates pepsinogen? Acid. Hydrochloric acid. Uh, And what it activates it into? Pepsin. Yeah, it just chops off that O-G-E-N and now pepsin are, are those molecular scissors that can chop up the proteins. Now in the stomach we've mechanically and chemically digested proteins into amino acids. So in the mouth we've done carbs, in the stomach we've done proteins. We haven't done fats yet. Yeah. Last thing is that those cells that release the hydrochloric acid called parietal cells, they also release another enzyme. Do you know what that's called? Ooh, That's with I. And it's a factor. Oh, intrinsic factor, yeah. Intrinsic factor. So do you know what intrinsic factor does?
1: It's for a B vitamin. Mm-hmm.
2: It basically safeguards vitamin B12 so that the hydrochloric acid doesn't destroy it and allows for safe transit into the rest of the bowel or small intestines to be absorbed. And we need B12 for normal red blood cell production. Yeah. So if you don't have... Uh, intrinsic factor, you don't absorb B twelve through your diet, and you can get anemia. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is termed pernicious anemia. Back in the day, you know, uh, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. Well, what, what? Firstly, what's a pro? What What are the proton pumps? What do they do? What's the purpose in the stomach? What's well, a proton?
1: Uh, a proton is hydrogen ion. Yeah. And so the proton pump presumably would be just the process of pumping the hydrogen ions into the lumen of the stomach.
2: Yeah, it's the way those parietal cells release hydrochloric acid through the proton pump. And so sometimes some people who have gastric reflux, people like myself, that acid uh, is produced to a really high degree and can be thrown up into the esophagus and damage the esophagus. So the esophagus doesn't have that bicarbonate like the stomach does to protect it from digesting itself so the esophagus can really get damaged over time by the hydrogen ions and that's ga- that gastroesophageal reflux can cause a change in the cell types in the esophagus called barrett's yeah. esophagitis which is can be a precursor for esophageal cancer. cancer yeah so a lot of people who have that are prescribed ppis proton pump inhibitors to stop the acid from and being this produced. would be
1: more effective or beneficial than just taking Antacids,
2: yeah, because all the antacids do is neutralise the available acid in that moment, but the PPIs will stop the acid production for a certain period. And you actually don't need the hydrochloric acid for protein digestion. It helps, but you don't need it. You can still get your amino acids from do your you protein. You'd be more prone to get you are infections. Yes, you are. Yeah. yeah, the other thing is that, and this is the point I was getting at, was that the old ppis that they used to have many years ago they work directly by stopping the parietal cells okay which means they didn't just stop hydrochloric acid from being released they stopped the intrinsic factor which means some of the people on these ppis used to get pernicious anemia that was a side effect of the old school ppis but not anymore now they're um very specific to, to the proton, proton part. pump yeah okay so that's that's an aside Do you know one of the main causes of – so sometimes if you've got too much acid being produced in your stomach um, and the balance is out. So remember the acid sort of needs to be diluted by that or neutralized by the bicarbonate. If you're not producing enough bicarbonate or you're producing too much hydrochloric acid, you can create little holes in your stomach, right, Mm -hmm. called ulcers. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the main cause of that is? Peptic ulcers. Do you know what the main cause of that is?
1: Well, they probably once would have thought it was um, stress. Yeah, yeah. Which I think has a small degree of effect, which we can talk about potentially. Um, There's also an effect from the use of some anti-inflammatories. Yeah, true. But I think by far- Like
2: NSAIDs. Yeah, NSAIDs. Because they block prostaglandins, which makes the bicarbonate.
1: So So like aspirin or norepinephrine. Yep. But by far, I think they've now shown that it's from a particular type of bacteria.
2: Do you remember what it's called?
1: Helicobacter.
2: Yes, Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori. And fellow Aussie mm-hmm. got a Nobel Prize for this. Do you remember what he did?
1: Well, he basically proposed that as a hypothesis that the community, the science community, whether it was the gastrointestinal science community, kind of laughed him off. Yeah. And he thought, well, I'll, I'll show you. I'll prove to you that I'm correct. Was they the words he said. I'll ah. show you.
2: Why, I order?
1: <laughs> so he Watch
2: this, guys.
1: I guess ingested a broth of H. pylori mm. and drank it and gave Yum. himself ulcers and then treated it with an antibiotic and demonstrated the effect of this particular bacteria.
2: And he showed that, yeah, the, the the ulcers are caused by H. pylori, won a Nobel Prize. Very cool. So you can actually test for this if you are getting gastritis – um, so this is like a, a stomach pain. Yeah, stomach pain. Um, which I would describe
1: it as. It's painful, like an empty pain. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's so so it. Actually, to me, when like I got hungry. it, it it the pain is improved by f- eating.
2: Yes, so, transiently.
1: So when you actually fill your stomach a bit, the pain is improved.
2: Yes. Uh, you can test for it by going to your GP, and many of them will have the ability for you to just breathe. Onto this stick, and it measures, and it measures the. um, I'm sure that wasn't a police officer at a on a roadside. Get arrested after I did it. (laughs) Um, Good point. Uh, So basically, you breathe, and it picks up. This device picks up the byproduct of the H. pylori. And says, yeah, you got it. Here's some antibiotics. What part of the
1: H pylori? Is it their like burping or is it their farting? Or- well,
2: I don't know if they've got a mouth or an anus like we do. <laughs> but some byproduct of the H pylori. You know, the H pylori, what it does is it increases the amount of hydrochloric acid you produce and decreases the amount of bicarbonate you produce. So it creates that imbalance in the stomach. On the walls? Yeah. Because I guess well, that's where they're well, hanging Well, in specific, out, right? I, and I can't remember them now. Because they'd be attached to the wall, right? Yeah. Well, they're actually, the H pylori rests in very specific parts of the stomach yeah. where you have higher densities of parietal cells. Wow. Because there's certain parts of the stomach which don't really have parietal cells. Okay. yeah, right? would make sense. Yeah. So anyway, what your stomach's done is it's released hydrochloric acid, bicarbonate, intrinsic factor, and also um, uh, what else? Pepsinogen. And pepsinogen, that's right, pepsin to, to break it all down. Obviously there's other things that it releases like hormones like gastrin for example which help trigger the release of more yeah. of all this stuff yeah. um, and gastrin can be released simply through like the cephalic phase of eating which is you come home, you know… You smell my cooking and you're like, wow, Michael. Oh, actually, Matthew, I've got gastritis. Wow, Mal- Mal- Mal-. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, we don't live together so it's that's not true. like I come that's home true. and if I found you it in my kitchen like cooking… I would be quite upset.
1: Especially wearing that apron.
2: Yes, well, that's my <laughs> momentum, so please stop. Um, the, the apron that says, kiss kiss your chef. Yeah. <laughs> um, kiss, kiss your chief cell. <laughs> this is a kiss your cheeks. Um, so, uh, anyway, Gastron's released, Trigger's... All this stuff. When you smell food, when you see food, it actually triggers your gastric. Think about food. It also primes your stomach. And that's why when you smell food, you can get that. What is that called? Well, that's peristaltic waves. They're I hunger know, pangs. I know there's a name for it. Hunger pangs. No, there's a, there's a technical term. Oh, I believe it's called hunger pangs.
1: It's um, got a ridiculous long name that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce. Well,
2: because you can barely pronounce normal. Correct, words. correct. So, anyway, well, the hunger pangs. They're interesting because your stomach creates these waves of peristaltic contractions, right? They start really gently at the top of the stomach, like the body of the stomach. And as it transmits down to the pylorus, it becomes crazy strong. So strong that it squeezes the stomach to squirt the... chyme The, the, the chyme. which it's we haven't be, defined it's, it's yet. It's now going to be...
1: Termed chyme, right?
2: Yeah. Once all the stuff in the stomach has been mixed together and broken up, it's now termed chyme. But squeezes it through the pylorus into the small first part of the small intestines, but only like millimeters, uh, milliliters, at a time. So the stomach really empties very, slowly, in, slowly. Squir- in squirts, in squirts, which is probably
1: a good thing because you don't want a, a wave of acidic material, you know, flushing into your duodenum, right? Because that's going to start burning holes in that.
2: So that that's okay. So that's a great point. Your gastric emptying is a really important part of digestion. You your the control of how much chyme gets squirted into your duodenum is actually very important, and it's controlled through five processes. So your duodenum, the major way that you can control. So okay, so Matt's just now shown me the word. This is the word for your stomach makes that growling sound is called uh, b-bori, b-borig, borigmus. Oh, it says listen. Press the button. Let's see what that says. Is it? It's not working. Borigmus? Is that how it's pronounced? Don't worry about Don't it. Don't ask me. Okay. So once... The chyme has been squirted into the very first part of the small intestines, which is called the duodenum. The duodenum is the main way we can um, affect gastric emptying, which is super interesting. So for example, if the stomach squirts too much stuff into the duodenum, the duodenum stops the stomach from emptying. That's the first thing. So distension of the duodenum is one of the ways you stop gastric emptying.
1: And is that just a neurological feedback loop? Correct. Rather than hormonal? So just Correct. It's just neurological.
2: Second is irritation to the mucosa of the duodenum. Yeah. That's going to stop gastric emptying. Third is um, uh, accumulating too much chyme in the small intestines. Uh, the and, al- and also the contents, right? Yes, yeah, sorry. The uh, acidity of the chyme is the, is the main way,
1: but, right? But also like... The macro molecule. I'll get
2: there. Okay. I'll get there. So the acidity of the chyme, that's the third way. The fourth is the concentration of the chyme. So that's another one. The fifth is the presence of the breakdown products in the chyme. So if it's fatty opposed to maybe… Yeah, mainly proteins. proteins. Mainly yeah. proteins is the inhibitory way for the stomach. Wow. Then fats and carbohydrates last. So… Your duodenum is the major control mechanism to stop gastric emptying. So basically, if too much stuff gets into the duodenum, it says, hey, stop, right? Now, the way it mainly does this is through hormones. And the major hormone that it, it does this through is CCK, cholecystokinin. And it's actually got its name after what it does with the gallbladder, gallbladder. Yeah. Right? which now allows for us to bring in the liver and gallbladder into this conversation so what have we, let's just have a think about what we've broken down so far in regards to food stuff not so you, much you got proteins fats and carbs of those three which ones have we broken down and where a little bit of
1: carbs in the mouth yeah and we've started the process of proteins in the stomach with unraveling them yep and maybe chunk chunking them into bigger chunks
2: Hydrochloric acid unraveling and pepsin chopping it up. Definitely
1: definitely not cutting into its individual amino acids at this point, but in terms of what do you call it? Oligo, um, what's it like? Uh, Peptides maybe. Yeah,
2: peptides. That's right. So protein are long chains of amino acids. Peptides are shorter chains of amino acids. And then individual amino acids are just amino acids. So... The only thing we haven't really broken down yet is fats, right, triglycerides. And so once all this stuff has entered the duodenum, these breakdown products trigger cells in the walls of the duodenum called enteroendocrine cells and they release chemicals and one of those chemicals is CCK. It's a right. hormone. Yep. So it doesn't stay in the digestive tract. It jumps into the bloodstream, goes all throughout the body. Specifically, it goes to two main places, one of which is the stomach, and says, Stop. Don't squirt any more stuff in. We need to digest. But then the other place that CCK goes to is and it's all in the name, coli cystokinin.
1: Well, coli cyst is just Latin for gallbladder. Yep. Cyst. And kind is of means contract. Coal. As in cholesterol.
2: Oh, there you go. Because the major product of uh, the gallbladder is bile and the major product... Bile
1: is cholesterol.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, cholecystokinin goes to the gallbladder to contract it, squeeze it, squeezes that bile out directly into the duodenum.
1: And this is just as a side point, this is why a question with... If you had a patient with um, abdominal pain, you usually ask questions about, you know, when did you experience this pain? What makes it worse? What makes it better? Mm. And we know been uh, a digestive pain, if you were to have a, an abdominal pain associated with digestion, you'd know that it's a, it's a function of the digestive system. Yeah. And so you can ask a question at what point in your process of eating or digesting is the pain worse? So oh. if it's like a reflux pain, it's yeah. probably straight after eating and, you know, If you're gone flat after eating, you're more likely to get a a reflux-like pain, right?
2: If you've gone flat,
1: you know, like lie down in bed.
2: Oh, sorry, yes, 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 yes.
1: Okay, and so where, whereas a pain associated with the gallbladder might be it's more of a fatty meal or sometime after eating because you have to give your time for your stomach to process some, throw it into the small intestine, start to produce CCK which is now stimulating the gallbladder to contract. Right. And if it's got stones in there mm. or you've got problems with your gallbladder, then that's when you're going to get your pain associated with the either the, the gallbladder or the stones in the bile duct.
2: So this is an interesting point, is that the whole digestive tract, these hollow tubes, if I were to get a knife and cut them, you would not feel any pain from that. It hasn't evolved that. makes sense. Why would the gut evolve pain receptors due to cutting? But it does feel pain when it's stretched too much or it's squeezed over the top of something. So when you've got gas in there and it, and it distends it too much, you get pain. Or if the muscles of this tract contract over a, a, a solid object, a tumor, hard fecal material or stone, a stone yeah. it's going to cause pain. They're the major ways, right? So that's a good point. So, Now we've squirted this stuff in. We've broken down carbs. We've broken down proteins, but we haven't broken down fat. So the major trigger for the release of CCK, like you alluded to, is the fats. And the reason why is, like you said, it goes to the gallbladder, tells it to squeeze, squeezes the bile, because all the gallbladder is is a storage unit for bile. It doesn't make it, it just stores it. And concentrates it. And concentrates it, great. And it's a detergent. So it emulsifies. That's the biological term we use. Emulsifies the fats in the duodenum. So the analogy I like to use is when you've got water in, uh, when you've got oil in a pan, and you go to clean the pan with water, the oil comes together to form what's called big globules. It's really hard to break that up with enzymes. Digestive enzymes that break proteins, fats, and carbs up only work on the surface of those molecules. They don't work deep. So if the molecule's really big like a fat globule, it doesn't do much. You need to break it up into smaller pieces and that's what the bile does as a detergent. So the bile comes in from the gallbladder, emulsifies the fats into smaller, more manageable pieces called myceles and then the lipases, the enzymes can chop which, it up. Which comes from where? Wow, good question, Matt. Where does the lipases come from? The pancreas. The pancreas. So now how the hell do we bring the pancreas into this conversation?
1: Well, the pancreas is just kind of tucked in around the duodenum because the duodenum kind of- Has a C cr- shape. It's a C shaped, it's probably about 20 centimetres long. It's not a, a huge length of tract. Small intestine, yeah. Small intestine as a whole length is probably the, the largest part of your gastrointestinal tract yeah. in terms of length. It's the longest part, but the duodenum is, is the smallest component of the small intestine. Yeah. So it's probably only about 25 centimetres in length. But it's shaped like a C and tucked into the C part, the concavity is the head of the pancreas. Mm. And so the bile duct, which is coming from the gallbladder, goes around the back side of the duodenum, tucks into the back or into the head of the pancreas and the main pancreatic duct joins the, the bile duct to join together into the duodenum. And so the which it makes a lot of sense because as the gallbladder is being told to contract, it releases its bile, but at the same time the pancreas is told to release some of its pancreatic juices in with the bile and one component of the pancreatic juices is all the um, enzymes for fat, which are the lipases.
2: So both the bile from the gallbladder and liver is squirted into the duodenum and the pancreatic juices are squirted into the duodenum as well. Now, we said the trigger for the gallbladder was CCK. CCK also triggers the pancreas to release pancreatic juices, but also there's another hormone that's released at the same time as CCK from those interoendocrine cells in the duodenum as well called secretin. And that helps, the, that helps the pancreas to release other aspects of pan- pancreatic juices like bicarbonate because the bicarbonate needs to help neutralise some of the acids coming from the stomach.
1: Now, in, interesting though, yeah. with the pancreas it's got definitely one main duct but it's in many cases will also have a smaller duct above it, so closer to the stomach mm. and that's called the accessory duct and that's usually in secretion-wise more bicarbonate than the pancreatic juices. Yeah. Which comes from the main pancreatic duct, which then makes sense because you want to secrete your bicarbonate higher up the tube, so it gets a chance to diet Sorry, to neutralise the acid before it comes a bit further down yeah, yeah. to do the digestion.
2: No, th- I think that's a. I think that's a great point. Uh, the The pancreatic juices aren't just lipases so enzymes that break up fats they're also proteases so like the pepsin enzymes that break up proteins and amylases enzymes that break up carbs which means by the time we hit the duodenum we really should be well and truly breaking all the macronutrients up into their micronutrients and an interesting point is that everything's made out of proteins right so the thought process you, you
1: mean the enzymes sorry you mean the enzymes
2: well every everything in the body is made up of proteins right and so if you've got proteases things that break up proteins basically released out from the pancreas why the pancreas? pancreas is made from proteins so why aren't the proteases that the pancreas produces breaking the pancreas up a bit a
1: bit similar to what we saw in the stomach so it's secreted inactive uh, form so the yeah. enzymes aren't activated in an inactive form yeah and by the time they are activated they're hopefully in the lumen of the small intestine
2: that's right yeah. yes so but some things can happen where they get activated in the pancreas itself and alcohol can do this infections can do this or, uh, or blockages or you, yeah
1: so you get a blockage either through a cancer or through a stone mm,
2: and blocking then, those ducts
1: and then it goes backwards and that will cause pancreatitis
2: yeah, that's right. Pancreatitis often due to the proteases digesting the pancreas itself. So now we've started digesting everything. So from the duodenum, which is the very first part of the small intestines, there's actually three parts of the small intestines. First is the duodenum. What's the next part?
1: So ju- duodenum first, yep. which is 12 fingers. That's what it means. Oh, okay. Okay. Um because that's how long it is? Yes, that's yep. right. Uh, jejunum.
2: Jejunum. Yeah, with a
1: yep. J. Yeah. And then ileum.
2: Ileum. Uh, and it,
1: and it, they just kind of get smaller in diameter as you go down.
2: Uh, and the, so they're the three parts. Yeah. Throughout the jejunum, you are releasing more enzymes from what's called brush border cells of the uh, small intestines. But you are absorbing most of these now micronutrients. So glucose, galactose, fructose, amino acids, nucleic acids, uh, uh, um, fatty acids, and glycerol. They're all the breakdown products. We're also obviously absorbing vitamins, yeah, water, yeah, yeah. electrolytes, things as well. So now we're starting to absorb these products. So this is
1: the longest part of the intestine and with the greatest amount of uh, surface tissue, yes. surface area, should I say. Yeah. So this is where you got your villi and microvilli. So you're, yeah, trilling, fingertips. you're really trying to suck out all the things from the food that are most beneficial.
2: Yeah, so villi look like fingertips. Um, and the microvilli look like fingertips on fingertips, and it just increases that surface area. So they both release enzymes but absorb stuff, and they're absorbing all of these nutrients into the bloodstream except the fat products, so fatty acids and glycerol, that gets absorbed into the lymphatic system. That's another discussion point for a separate day um, because we've already already spoken about it. We've done another podcast looking at the digestion specifically of these food products. Macronutrients. But uh, the glucose and the – so the carbohydrate breakdown products and the amino acids and nucleic acids, they're absorbed into the bloodstream, specifically into what's called the portal system. So can you tell us a bit about the portal system?
1: It's basically all the blood that drains from the the digestive (laughs) tract. So pretty much all the tract from the lower region of your esophagus – all the way to probably the superior or proximal one third of your rectum.
2: Everything drains into the portal what, system that goes to the liver.
1: Portal venous system. That's so right. So how is
2: that clinically relevant to know?
1: Well, it basically means anything that you ingest pretty much will go have to go through the liver first. And but so, what if
2: I absorbed it in my mouth or my bum, anus?
1: Well, let's just let's just stay with rectum. that first part. So, mouth. Yeah, no just with the the gastrointestinal tract okay so it two-thirds of the blood of all the blood that goes to your liver two-thirds of it is from this portal system so it, two-thirds of the blood to the liver surprisingly is venous blood and only a third is arterial blood
2: so wait so most organs of the body get one del- one system of delivery of blood to it yeah right? so
1: you, all the pretty much every part of your body will have arterial blood taken to it yeah um, sent to it. Sent to it. It takes what it needs and then it drops off this other stuff and that gets taken away via venous blood. Okay, but the liver is a bit different. The liver's different in terms of two-thirds of it. So 60% of the blood taken to it is venous blood.
2: Right. And that's... So no other organ gets venous blood delivered to it apart from the heart, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But again, I could be... It's probably always... Oh, there's always. But so... The, so and this is because this bloodstream has a whole bunch of nutrients and stuff. And
1: remember, your gastrointestinal tract is the outside world. Yeah. So it's potentially dangerous.
2: Right. There could be toxins damaging things that's absorbed. Good point. So it
1: needs to be looked at before it can get access to your systemic blood.
2: The liver plays that role. And
1: so a one big role of the liver is to detoxify. So anything that potentially has harmful chemicals in it that could kill you, it the liver wants to see it first. Right. And so that's why all this part of your tract needs to get processed through your liver mm. okay now there are two points along that 9 meters that has potential access to bypass the liver and that's what you mentioned so the mouth yeah and the last part of the rectum so the bottom kind of, third the, bottom, of the, the bottom bottom the bottom third of the rectum yeah and so Potentially, if you were to put substances in those regions that had the capacity to cross over the mucous membrane, it can get free access straight into the systemic circulation.
2: Not the portal system, not the, not the one going to the liver. So, so you might be able to chuck some drugs in that you don't want to go to the liver because the liver might break it up and make yeah. it useless. Because yeah. there will be some drugs. So this is another interesting point. Some drugs you don't want to swallow because the liver will inactivate it. Some drugs you do want to swallow because the liver will activate it. Yes. Some drugs you want to put straight into the bloodstream to bypass the liver so it doesn't inactivate it. So this is something that's important. But some you don't want to inject straight in. Some you want to absorb. It'll be a lot easier. Things like nitroglycerin for your heart, for example, probably be easier just as a tablet to put underneath your tongue for absorption. Yes,
1: yeah, because it, it, won't, it won't have access to your systemic blood if you were to take it orally, mm. either through your liver or through just the process of digestion. Mm. it The bioavailability of it is is very low, so it's easier to take it under your tongue.
2: But other drugs like codeine, if you take codeine, your liver will convert some of that codeine, a certain percentage, like 5% of it, uh, into morphine. Into morphine, yeah. Because right? morphine,
1: I think, is um, inactivated in your gastrointestinal tract, so that's why it's not usually given orally. I mean, there are, there are examples of it, but um, not morphine in its pure sense
2: and this process is called hepatic first pass yeah very important
1: uh, principle or concept in pharmacology
2: absolutely all right so we've got things going through the portal system to the liver so the liver has two-thirds of it is the portal system going to it yeah then the rest of it's going to be arterial, arterial yeah. just for oxygen and nutrients to feed itself correct but the portal system is simply f- to sent to liver for processing yeah and Obviously, detoxify is going to be one of those roles, but another role is going to be either to store a lot of the energy products like mm-hmm. glucose as glycogen, yep. so store it there, um, but also process things like some of the fats that ultimately do get to the liver and also processing the amino acids as well. Uh, but then playing a huge amount of ro- other roles like producing bile. Um, and
1: Yeah, that's a, that part's going the opposite way. So it's getting the breakdown product of red blood cells as we've probably spoken about before, you kill. Yeah, I've done
2: an episode on bile.
1: You kill about a million red blood cells a second, and that you want to recycle most of that stuff. But there one, there's one part of it from Billy Rubin, which is a breakdown Good guy. A breakdown product of heme needs to get sent to the uh, to the liver to get rid of, and that kind of gets put in with the bile, and that actually. Causes the coloration change in your poo. Yeah. So once once you kind of get to the large intestine, have we kind of covered the small intestine now?
2: Yeah. So let's just say we're at the very end of the small intestine, called the ileum. Yep. And then it gets to a part called the cecum. But final point on the liver and gallbladder, if that's okay, is when people get their gallbladder taken out. So this is called. So we said that that hormone was called CCK, cholecystokinin. A cholecystectomy is to remove the gallbladder. And sometimes we need to do that if there's gallstones or there's a blockage in the gallbladder or some of the pipes leading away from the gallbladder. Now, what this simply means is that you no longer have that storage unit for bile, but the gallbladder doesn't make the bile, the liver does. So you can still eat fatty foods, but big boluses or big amounts of fatty foods in one go might pass through you as a fatty stool because it didn't have enough time for the bile to be produced and released from the liver mm. to break it down for absorption. Right, So that's an in- interesting point. But again, you don't need your gallbladder to break down fats. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a really important point. It doesn't mean you have to avoid fats wholeheartedly, but you just probably need to be mindful of the quantity of fat that's ingested in one moment.
1: Is that fair? I think that's fair. All right. So now we've gone from the... And if you were to, like if you were to sit down and have a big burger with a, a plate of chips mm. in one go, you may lose the ability to break it down efficiently and you might end up having a, a fatty poo, yeah. which is called Steeterita, which is yeah. kind of white and floaty.
2: Yeah, great. <laughs> which, which was your nickname in high school. Whitey floaty. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, the ileum, last part of the small intestines, turns into the cecum, which is the first part of the large intestines. Through the, a valve. The, the ileocecal valve? Yeah. Okay, so another sphincter that separates.
1: I think that it gets opened up pretty much in the cephalic phase. So when you start yeah. the top end of your eating, this one kind of starts to open up, which is probably why you crap yourself.
2: How long? <laughs> crap, like just seven like, minutes. Sorry, sorry Lisa. I minutes don't crap after. myself. It's not like I walk around with poo in my pants. I can make it to the toilet easily in time, most of the time. No, all the time, all the time, all okay. the time. Well, not not on Wednesday, you weren't. Well, that was because of another problem. So uh, now the cecum, when we do dissections on rats with my students, um, which we don't really do anymore, but we used to do that quite a bit. So I don't think you've t- you've taught for... Hey, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I teach, believe me. So we <laughs> do dissections on rats and we see that rats have huge cecums. So we don't, we barely, you can barely tell the cecum from the rest of the large intestines when you look at it. I mean, you can, but you know, not like you can with a rat. You look at a rat's one, it's big and green, right?
1: <laughs> so you why- sure You got the right body part?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So why? Why is that the case? Um,
1: I think this goes to an animal that probably has more um, plant-based diet. So right. it's ingesting more, uh, yeah, plant-based foods. So what's the cecum do then I think, for that? I think the cecum
2: and possibly… That's a band from the 70s, was it? The cecum? Oh, no, that's the Seekers. The seekers. <laughs> Close. I like the Seekers. I'm sure you do because um, they made music
1: before the 80s. Yeah. The 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 only best, music the the Matt be, listens The to. best time, the best time for music. Yeah. Um, I think it, just with the, the fiber and it takes a lot more time to digest and this part of the intestine get, has the equipment, probably also the bacteria that's to, right. to digest that food. So probably here, because as you, as you know, um, depending on what animal you are. And Human,
2: just so you're well,
1: aware. Well, you were talking about a rat here. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. But some animals that are predominantly or well, actually all- plant-based herbivores, they would have different array of the foreguts so the stomach would be different to ours. Yeah. Now, we've probably got more of a, like a maybe closer to a carnivore-like stomach mm-hmm. where it's smaller in size. It's not like a big vat that has huge amounts of bacteria to kind of compost, What's yeah. it decompose? The, yeah. the, the, the foods like like or the cellulose, uh, like goats yeah. or like cows. Yeah. Whereas say a rat, they probably got more – closer to ours, but they would also ingest a lot of um, plant-based foods. Which, a whole
2: bunch of insoluble yeah, fibres. Which
1: they need to provide space for bacteria to provide that assistance with breaking down the fibre. And then, and then the bacteria are actually quite useful to break down the fibre into things like short-chain fatty acids, which could have quite a beneficial effect on our health and our immune system.
2: Yeah, that's a good point because insoluble fibres – Uh, don't really nourish us but nourish the bacteria within our gut, large intestines specifically, uh, which can be beneficial to our health. Uh, So when you've got a rat and it's just eaten a whole bunch of insoluble fibre, it sits in that cecum to ferment for the bacteria to really break it up so that they can actually get some nutrients from it because certain animals do have enzymes and the bacteria allows them to get energy from it. We don't really get much energy from insoluble fibre, but it does help um, give us a better stool, push the fecal material through, but also provides us with healthy gut flora.
1: And interestingly, with with the comparison between a human and, and rodents, they actually have done studies where they find for humans, um, carcinomas that are likely to form uh, uh, generally will affect our large intestine or our colon. So oh, we're more likely to get colon cancer, which is large bowel all the way through to rectum. Oh. Whereas rodents, it's more likely in the front end. So the small intestine, so a, a foregut type cancer. But when the rodent, rodents, if they give them a human-based diet, they get the cancer at the oh, the colon how end. how
2: interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. And it's
1: probably, this, this change is so... Quickly these days, with all the the biota and so forth, right? So, you know what was even a year ago, they they they're now talking changes in terms of de- mm-hmm. so forth. But they they propose that a lot of the cancers within the gut, well, should I say within the colon, seem to be associated with the type of bacteria or the the type of flora that's within it, and they are more like carcinogenic. Not so much the bacteria but the products that they produce. Yeah. So the types of foods that we give or the types of foods that we eat impact the biota in our colon and therefore the products that they produce from breaking down the foods that's in the colon can be carcinogenic-like. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's very cool. Um, The other thing I see when we do rat dissections is their liver is huge. And that's part of that detoxification yeah, process. Rats would, eat anything, man. Right. And so they're going to be eating a whole bunch of stuff that will potentially kill them. Um, <laughs> and like, some, rat, like rat sack. Yeah, like warfarin. <laughs> um, all right, so we are now in the large intestines. Cecum is the first part. And the cecum will turn into the ascending colon, which... Just one r- oh. real small appendix. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, sorry, yes. Oh, You've, you've forgotten
1: a, an important appendage here, which Appendigy. is the which is, <laughs> which is which is the appendix, Vermix yeah, appendix, worm-like appendix. Yes, so probably again with these animals, the appendix may have been the cecum, yeah, and they've just it's oh, just oh, kind yeah, of shriveled yeah. up to be this little worm-like structure. Right. As we've probably um, been told, yes, through our life, that appendix are pointless. they yeah, vestigial, some would say. Yeah. So in America at least, 80,000 – sorry, worldwide, 80,000 deaths per year from the appendix. Oh, boy. So from appendicitis that has broken. That's nasty. Basted, ruptured. Co- leads to a Peritonitis. A peritonitis and then probably sepsis and then mm. death. So 80,000 people die per year. In America, maybe 300. Uh, 250,000 hospitalizations from this. Wow. And it would have been a very common cause of death in the pre-model. It would have been a cause for death, yeah. In the pre-model, modern, modern, that's why I'm saying model, modern um, history because before surgery. Um, So it was thought that there's just this thing that hangs off the side of the cecum that does nothing, but they've actually shown that it has a...
2: a Like you in the Dr. Matt, Dr.
1: Mike. (laughs) It has a, a fairly... Beneficial effect in terms of recolonizing the bowel, particularly after an infection. So, mm-hmm. if you were to be cleaned out, like maybe you were earlier this week, yep. fully flushed out, then this kind of recolonizes it by pushing this bacteria back into your and colon.
2: And did you know it's independently um, evolved? Like in- five or yeah. Seven times, right? Yeah, in multiple organisms yeah. independently. Yeah. So telling you that it's important. It has to be so important it's not function. vestigial. But it doesn't mean that you can't live, live without that one, it. Yeah. Right? So that's, again, it doesn't mean, oh, I've got appendicitis, keep it. No, get rid of the bloody thing. You don't need it. All right. So then we move into the ascending colon, which goes up the right-hand side of the abdomen, the transverse colon, which goes across. It turns the right angle at the liver. Yep. Goes across the top.
1: That's called the hepatic flexure.
2: Then you've got the descending colon going down the left hand side turn, of the abdomen. Turns another 90 degrees. Yep. And it's sort of creating a frame for the small intestines. Yep. yep. Then it makes a little squiggle turn like a question mark called the sigmoid colon. Or a sigmoid uh, shape. Ca- character. Yep. Which sigmoid is like a question mark sort of shape because um, not many people know what a sigmoid Sigmoid looks like. curve. Yep. Yep, sigmoidal curve. And then you've got the rectum and then you've got the anus. But all of this is part of the colon, which is collectively the large intestines. Yep. And they've got very distinctive phenotypes, a so structure to it called horse Now, do you know what these horse are? Um...
1: The pouching, right? Yeah, the
2: pouching. So if you look at the large intestines, obviously it's wider than the small intestines. It's not longer by any means, but definitely wider. But it's got these pouchings due to um, muscle and connective tissue. So you've got circular muscle which sort of thicken every couple of centimetres, which... Look like pouches, and then you've got uh, this big long muscle that sort of runs the length of the large intestines. Teniae coli, I think it's called. And when that contracts, it sort of shortens the length of the large intestines, which bundle up these what look like individual pouches all throughout the large intestines. That's called haustra, and that just helps play a role in moving the material through the large intestines. And what, what what kind
1: of what's the function along here now?
2: Well, we're absorbing mainly, not nutrients, but we're absorbing things like water and electrolytes. Okay. Yeah.
1: And also the bacteria, which is... Yes. This is where the most of the bacteria is?
2: Absolutely is. If
1: they're doing their own digestion mm. and they're providing certain nutrients for us. And, and a good and a good example would be fi- vitamin K, right?
2: Oh, great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is very important in blood clotting. Yeah. So the bacteria... Uh, I think we're going to do a podcast focusing on gut flora or even flora of the body. Haven't we done it? We haven't done it, no, but we should do it. The reason why we haven't done it is, like you were saying, uh, it changes, like, every week. There's new stuff. It's complex. Anytime you listen to somebody talk about it, just know that the science has probably changed or they're wrong or uh, it's a bit different. Yeah. Right? So that's the only reason why we didn't want to be dated by the time we did it. So – Once we hit the end of the large intestine, we get to the rectum and then the anus, we start talking about the process of defecation.
1: So now it's a feces?
2: Yeah, we've absorbed everything we've uh, needed. What's left in the feces? Well, uh, 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 poo. Fibre? Yes.
1: So that's a big part of it. And that's important why we should have fibre. Yep. Because this is going to help clean... Move things through. Like a... What you say? Like a a
2: pipe cleaner. A pipe cleaner.
1: There we go. Good. So fibre is one... Um, dead bacteria, mm, mm. sloughed off cells. Excuse me? Sloughed off cells. Yes, yes. So yes. that basically means dead cells. The whole gastrointestinal tract, the inner lining, which are epithelial tissue, right, mm. they're one of the most frequently replaced cell in the body. Mm. Maybe every one to two days there's a new layer of cells there.
2: And it's c- not just those cells that are dead. There's a reason why our poo's brown, right? I'll get in there. Oh, sorry, sorry.
1: Um, So a big part is just, dead epithelial cells along the tract Yes, and then the remnants of dead red blood cells that's right. which is the bilirubin that has oh, been um, modified by the bacteria as well.
2: By now it's biliverdin, right?
1: No, biliverdin before bilirubin okay. then it gets steri- stereocilin or something okay. something like that I should have brought it up urobiligen.
2: We did do a podcast on it now we've forgotten Yeah, terrible um, No, urobilinogen is what we pee out Yeah Uh, Anyway, let's not bring it up. But it's the products of dead red blood cells, which is what makes our poo brown. Um, So... So by the
1: time we get to this, there's also air. Excuse me? Which is flatulence.
2: So you were telling me that uh, when they give you a colonoscopy, they they blow a gas into you. You've Um, you've had one done. I've I've had two colonoscopies done. Uh, And uh, you... Do um, so basically, have a fair bit of flatulence afterwards. So
1: basically, what they tell you to do is change your diet to a, like a, a watery diet,
2: low fiber, basically, low, low fiber for a couple of days, and then a lot of and then no food and only fluids. Okay, and then they give you uh, a, l- a bunch of stuff that gives you osmotic diarrhea, which basically pulls everything out of your digestive tract until uh, the aim is is you're pooing out... um, Just water. Yeah, very clear fluid. Okay, So you've got super clear bowel, so they can put a camera up and see everything that's in there. Um, But when they go in, they put a bit of gas in there, um, and non-flammable gas, uh, to open everything up, but also you were telling me to possibly dilute out any flammable gases that you might have in your Yes, so basically the content
1: of a fart or a flatulent is... Fifty percent carbon dioxide, forty mm-hmm. percent hydrogen. Yeah, about twenty percent nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And you could also depend on what you've eaten, uh, and then depending on what the bacteria produce. Did a
2: podcast on farts.
1: Yeah, short one. It?
2: Yeah, medical yeah. minutes. Methane. Yeah, Mr. Methane. Remember him? And then
1: hydrogen sulfide. Yes. Now that's the flammable one.
2: All right, Hydro- hydrogen sulfide.
1: So that would that's the s- methane is not flammable. It oh, does. it would be, but the hydrogen sulfide is the real nasty one, right. and and apparently at a certain concentration, it paralyzes um, your olfactory uh, nerves. What? So at a high con- high concentration, it actually paralyzes it's your it's
2: such a horrible smell. It's basically like oh, right, I, think, this is I bad. think it's just
1: the chemical response in oh, your yeah. you know, your nasal mucosa and your olfactory epithelium that so it. it, it you can't smell it. Wow. But at that particular concentration, it's, it's quite flammable and they learnt that the hard way with some early experiments, I guess. Not experiments but uh, interventions where they went into the rectum, sigmoid colon maybe, and tried to diathermy. What's,
2: what do you mean diathermy?
1: Uh, burn off yeah. but with electricity. Yeah. Um, polyps. Right. And because they were up there and there was hydrogen sulfide that literally…
2: Kaboom. Went boom. Kaboom the boom boom. Yeah, yeah. And wow kaboom
1: went everywhere. Wow. That's so pretty horrible. So that's part of the reason why they'll inflate with a different uh, gas yeah. to dilute that out.
2: Okay. So that's interesting. Um, what happens uh, when we need to get rid of this material <laughs> and defecate? Oh, you mean the process of defecation? Yeah, the process of defecation.
1: I think as the um, – the, the faeces comes down through the sigmoid and comes down into the straight part, which is the rectum, the the long straight yep. tube. Right so at the end. Right at the end. So it's kind of gone around the s bend, comes mm. down straight towards the anus. You've mm. got the rectum. As it's come through there, we've obviously got an array of stretch receptors, which you would um, feel as there is a, a discomfort there.
2: Yeah. Something but needs to get out. Nothing. Something needs to come out. Yes. But
1: at this point, until
2: I'm, a, I'm on a date at the movies, until I a, don't want to defecate during yeah. that moment.
1: So there's kind of two sphincters. There's a there's an internal and external sphincter. The external has obviously got a somatic control. So you have voluntary control over that external external, external, external sphincter. So you that, can
2: say not today or, or not this. <laughs> maybe today, but ma- not this moment in time. Yeah.
1: So you All can right. close that off. Yeah. Whereas the the internal will kind of work off reflex. So it's stretch and then kind of contraction based on a normal kind of reflex. So when the poop's
2: coming, it's going to stretch. You send signals to the brain which tell the internal sphincter to relax. The poop then continues to move through to the external sphincter which goes to the brain. It says, hey, Mike, it's time. And you go, "Uh, ah, not right now.
1: The internal is kind of... Intrinsic to the wall of the gut, anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of within the the wall of the mucosa. Oh, sorry, the the, the the muscle wall of the bowel, anyway. Yeah. But the external is on the an additional muscle on the outside of it. So that's why you have this additional control. But as it moves down to a line, we call the dentate or the pectinate line. Oh, yeah. It's the kind of transition point between the outside body and the inside body, or the the tube and the skin. And as you know, with the skin, we have a, a much greater array of sensory yes. experience and receptors. And so you have a better conscious ability to determine what is actually coming down. Gotcha. So this is the difference between knowing that, mm. is this a solid or an air? A
2: poo or a fart.
1: Yeah. Right. And so this is like so I So what spoke if your ab-
2: dentate's damaged?
1: Well, this is, I think I've spoke about it before, but this is part of the reason why um, general surgeons, particularly general surgeons that do colorectal surgery, they really try to preserve this part of the tube because it would be quite debilitating for the patient if it was resected out and they they lose their ability to determine if it's an air or a solid. Yeah, or or in between. Or in between. And so this is part of – you've probably also noticed this when you – get like a, a, a bout of diarrhoea yeah. because there's probably so much inflammation, you lose that ability to know yeah. what it is anymore. Oh, and tell you me just, about it. you just wouldn't trust the fart, right?
2: You would not. <laughs> I wouldn't expect it to be a fart. You know, it, it, so so uh, well, that's interesting. All right. So, so that's uh, a very
1: important region because that's the, the delineation line between um, the outside and the tube.
2: Yeah. yeah. So – when So somebody's gone to the bathroom, they've defecated, the fecal material is out and we've now gone through the entire process of the digestive system. Yeah. And uh, we've touched upon the structures and the functions. Uh, it has taken us an hour and 50 minutes to do so. To,
1: 200 to 300 grams of poo will come out of you per day.
2: Wow.
0: And Did you know? But, but, like,
1: but that's judging by if you were to have – One bowel motion a day, which I think we should all have at least one a day.
2: I agree. Um, One point that I wanted to say, which I didn't get to say, is that… About enemas? No, no. It's just about your daily secretion of digestive juices throughout the entire digestive tract. 6.7 litres of digestive juices you release. So this is mucus. This is enzymes. This is all of that from saliva all the way down to your anus.
1: So you really need to reabsorb a lot of that. Otherwise yes. you get dehydration pretty right. quickly.
2: 6.7 liters.
1: And that's probably part of the reason why you get diarrhea. When, well, you, get, specifically? when you get when you get diarrhea, um, why you lose so much fluid, it's probably you're not really reabsorbing all that all those secretions. Absolutely. And so you're pooing out liters and liters. So you're not drinking liters and liters. That's right. But you are pooing liters and liters and that's because you're Lost the absorption capacity along the way.
2: Insane. Yeah. So, thank you all for listening to our digestive uh, podcast. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a long one. But I well, think it's a, it's, long worth pi- it.
1: it's a long pipe. And uh, you know, it's nine meters, nine meters
2: of pipe to get through.
1: Now, two, la- two hours is pretty good, really.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to contact us, please do. We would love to read out your emails. And so, from now on now from now right now if you send us an email now uh we will read it out uh if you don't want us to say your name please say so but we would love to read out your emails because we do get a bunch of them and sometimes they're very difficult to get yeah, what, back to. what
1: are you requesting in this email
2: just tell us how much um you know you maybe how, maybe questions how awesome you comments, think i am, questions comments how terrible you think matt is as a co-host no ask questions send comments um uh, you know Not like the one where somebody sent me (laughs) a message the other day saying, I know that you only want compliments, but you're not going to get it. And then they started to talk about how terrible I was as a human being. Really? Yeah. 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 They don't even know me as a human being. I mean, they weren't wrong with any of it, but still. So send us an email, GU Biosciences. Do thank your dad for that g-u-b-i-o-s-c-i-e-n-c-e-s at gmail.com send us that email or you can contact us on social media matt's not really on it but i am on all platforms at dr mike todorovic you can just type my name mike t-o-d-o-r-o-v-i-c and i'll pop up say hi um and i'm happy to read out questions comments statements uh on the podcast So, thank you.
1: Yeah, related to the podcast, maybe the one before, correct us if we got things wrong. Yeah. By all means, I'm more than happy to say I was
2: wrong. And I'm I'm, not. I'm mostly wrong most of the time. and That's true. Uh, We have a YouTube channel. Please watch it. Subscribe, like, tell us whether it's useful or not. Uh, It is called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike, unsurprisingly. We're
1: creative. We are.
2: All right, everyone. Thank you.